0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Actually, I take that back, as I often do. I bite off more than I can chew in the beginning of the week and then narrow it down by the day before I'm preaching. So... um, we're going to be looking at the first three verses, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. I will read the entire um, section verse, down to the, verse 10 as it is really a single argument there. And it all kind of leads into what comes afterwards. So we could break this into several, we can break this chapter in several different ways, but uh, even the break at 10 is not necessarily um, an indication of, of his, a change of thought. In verse 11, it's he's continuing to elaborate on Melchizedek, comparing him to Christ. But when um, when a writer for a Christian magazine asked N.T. Wright which books were the most important in his thinking and work, he told him that it was the reference works that he always keeps near his desk. And a lot of pastors will have a, a small shelf of some sort with references, your confessions, your creeds, your... Uh, BCO, Book of Church Order, and, you know, um, oftentimes also your Greek and Hebrew dictionaries, maybe an encyclopedia or two, are there. But he notes how those dictionaries and encyclopedias, especially those dealing with the original languages, help bring the darkness of another world to light. Now, I probably would not have answered that way, and in fact, the writer of the magazine was expecting him to, to lay out some particular theological work or... Um, you know, maybe even a, a historical novel of some kind, a classical novel that has had an impact, but uh, dictionaries and, and encyclopedias we don't oftentimes put at the top of our uh, most important list of books. But I, I think there's some truth to that, that I would miss those probably more than anything else if I did not have them. It, it gives you a very concise, an insightful answer that takes into account the use of words or of persons, names, events. It gives you kind of all that you can, you can know about that from the various uh, places in scripture where you find them. And, and it distills it down into some very insightful comment. God's word is—we uh, need to do that, right? It's—it's it's broad, it's—it's it's vast, and 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 so as we are th- coming to a, a particular word, we oftentimes are e- immediately kind of stumped about either what it means or or what it implies as we're reading it. That's something we come across when we hear the name Melchizedek. There's not a whole lot of references to Melchizedek. Uh, the ones that are there in Scripture, there's two in the Old Testament, and then there's uh, references here in in Hebrews. And so it's an important um, thing for us to consider the whole counsel of God's word and how it applies to us. N.T. Wright says this, Again and again I am rewarded for my efforts as the text springs to life what started off as a small puzzle in the middle of my work has turned into a lighthouse sending rays of light flashing over the rest of the subject. I think that's what we get from Hebrews 7 as we open it together and as we consider Melchizedek here. We're going to find that what many would see as an obscure figure from the Old Testament, some, some figure that we know very little about, is going to magnify our appreciation for Jesus Christ. It's going to facilitate our communion with Christ as we think about these things. And so, in other words, he's the author of Hebrews is following the example that Jesus gave us in Luke 24, how to read Scripture. And the author of Hebrews has already referred to Melchizedek three times prior to this passage in Matthew or in Hebrews 5, verse 6 and 10, and 6:20, which is just the very uh, the verse prior to chapter seven. And so, it's apparent, at least according to this author, that he thinks his audience needs to hear something about Melchizedek. They need to understand the importance of Melchizedek. And I think as we work our way through this and explain Melchizedek, uh, you'll understand why that was so important. But it has been several weeks since we were last in Hebrews. So let me just begin with a a brief summary of where where we are in this letter, which we've said reads much like a sermon. it reads as if he wanted to give this to them in person, uh, vocally, and yet he, he was restrained from some, in some way to do that. So he writes it down for them and sends it to them. But we've, we've acknowledged that the first two chapters speak of Jesus being superior to angels. And if he's superior to angels who bring God's revelation, then we need to listen to Jesus, right? He's all that much more important. Uh, He's superior to Moses, and the one distinguishing feature that Moses was attempting to do was to get into the Promised Land. He was leading the people out of Egypt into the Promised Land where they might find rest from enemies, not be at war with one another. And so here, the author of Hebrews is saying, rest in Jesus. Jesus is superior to Moses. He actually brings and accomplishes the rest that you're seeking. Uh, Chapter 5, Jesus is our great high priest. Superior to the Levitical system. And so go to Jesus. Bring your cares to him. Go to the throne of grace. Uh, Chapter 6 gives us this warning followed by a very hopeful encouragement. And so we can learn from Jesus. So in a summary sentence, we could say we need to listen to Jesus, rest in Jesus, go to Jesus, and learn from Jesus. Hebrews is all about helping us see Jesus is superior to anything and everything else that promises uh, some some good in life, Jesus is always better. Now the author of Hebrews returns to the subject of Jesus as our great high priest here in chapter 7 and he'll elaborate on that for the next few chapters. Uh, The Greek word for high priest occurs 17 times throughout the book of Hebrews. And so it's clearly one of the main themes that we're supposed to understand from this letter. The author argues that the shadow of Melchizedek proves that Christ is from a superior order of priesthood. And then over the next several chapters, we'll see that Christ's sacrifice is of a superior sufficiency. Able to actually take away sins, as he'll say in chapter 10, verse 4. So, Christ's priestly office, as well as his sacrifice, is superior to that of the Levitical system. And so, here in chapter 7, there's really another warning that's implied by this text. We can become so intrigued, and what the audience here seems to be experiencing is they're so intrigued by the Old Testament shadows that they never take refuge in the substance, or at least they're in jeopardy of of reverting away from the substance which is christ all of these old testament prophets and and um and kings and and priests they all pointed forward as shadows foreshadowing jesus and when they get to jesus it seems like they're reverting back or at least they're tempted to revert back to the shadow I think we can learn something from this, not only about how to read God's word, but how to also help us to persevere, help us to be strong in the faith. So Jesus taught us a better way to understand scripture. It's that every Old Testament shadow is meant to enrich the communion that we have with the Redeemer. we, We should, in fact, study and be intrigued and be enamored by these shadows but never to the, to the loss of the substance, right? Only in the sense that they point us to Christ and that they deepen and enrich our relationship and our communion with him. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. Before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that we have a savior who, who came to fulfill these promises of the Old Testament to us. He fulfilled what every previous prophet, priest, and king was unable to fulfill. And he walked perfectly so that he can be our great high priest. Lord, help us to reflect upon that deeply this morning as we study these first few verses in Hebrews 7. And as we continue to work our way through this letter Lord, may it it truly enrich our communion with our Savior that we would depart and be able to spend time in your word throughout the week, recognizing how all of it either points forward to Christ or points back to what he has done on our behalf, and that we would be filled with the joy of our salvation as we reflect upon these things. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the the one case, tithes are received by moral men, but in the other case, by one of of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Amen. This is God's holy word. We are going to make two points this morning. uh, But the first thing we're going to do is really just summarize what has led us to this argument. Summarize the mentions of a high priest uh, prior to this, that the author has, has prepared his audience for this argument of Melchizedek. And so the first point in your outline is the preface of Melchizedek, or the preface to Melchizedek. This is, is obviously not the, talking about Melchizedek is not the central point of the entire book of Hebrews, but it's, but it's uh, an important part of, of his argument about the priestly office and how Jesus fulfills that office. So we've already learned that Jesus was made like us in order to become our faithful high priest. The author said that in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And then he follows that up in chapter 3, the first three verses there, stating that Jesus is an apostle and high priest of our confession, who is worthy of more glory than Moses. So even as he's describing the angels, Christ's superiority to angels and Christ's superiority superiority to moses there's this underlying theme of his priestly office that's being considered right he's a prophet priest he's a king priest he's a prophet priest and king as we find throughout the new testament so jesus is a high priest who came from the true holy of holies we read this in hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 he came from the true holy of holies having passed through the heavens and entered into humanity that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. And then in Hebrews 5, the author noted four aspects of high priestly ministry. And he's obviously recognizing that Christ fulfills these aspects, right? A, a, a priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God. So he's he mediates. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. So he sacrifices on their behalf as a mediator. Thirdly, he, he provides counsel. He deals gently with the wayward. That means that he chases those who are lost. He, he searches for the lost and brings them back into the fold and comforts those who are wayward, gently restoring them into the flock. And then fourthly, he is called by God. He's appointed to the office of a high priest. It's not something that you can just... Uh, appoint yourself or take upon yourself or, or get there by vote, right? It's something that is called by God. And so in the previous section, uh, chapter six, Jesus is the one who serves as an anchor of the soul entering into the inner place behind the curtain and then becomes our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He was our forerunner into that place. Now, As a forerunner, it's saying that we're going to follow him into that same holy of holies. So what is it saying? It's suggesting that that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, inviting us to join him there, inviting us to be at his throne of grace, to commune with him. So in chapter 7, the author shows that Melchizedek is superior even to Abraham. And if that's true, then he's also superior to the Levites who descended from Abraham. And yet, Melchizedek is merely a shadow of Christ. Christ is the one who is supreme over all typical Old Testament figures. So the point the author just made regarding Melchizedek in chapter 620 had to do with providing believers with that assurance of their hope that Christ is has risen from the dead, has ascended into heaven in his glorified humanity so that our own nature is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is that important? Because it shows that we too, our nature, our human nature, will one day be there in the, heaven, in the heavenlies, right? Uh, let me correct that. To be, It's when Christ returns and... and renews this earth right so that we be we enter into the new heavens and the new earth or will we, we will continue to commune with christ face to face if we depart prior to his return we are with him but we won't be in our humanity yet right we'll be waiting to be further clothed as paul says so we will be waiting for that day when we can be uh, when our body will be resurrected to meet our soul and we'll enter into the new heavens and new earth. But this is a, a remarkable promise to us. Right, that Jesus is our forerunner. He has done the work necessary. So that we might follow him there. We have one who is clothed in flesh. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Interceding on our behalf as our great high priest. I think this is... Not only important to reflect upon when we're going through great times, but also when we're struggling, when we're suffering, maybe when we're going through a spiritual depression as Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones called it. This is what he says about that state. He says, to make it quite practical, I have a very simple test. After I have explained the way of Christ to somebody, I say this, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And they hesitate and then i say what's the matter why are you hesitating and so often people say i don't feel like i'm good enough yet i don't think i'm ready to say i'm a christian now and at once i know that i have been wasting my breath they are still thinking in terms of themselves the very essence of the christian faith is to say that he is good enough and i am in him how can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you have almost entered into the depths of hell. It does not matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. It's a powerful thought. When the assurance of your faith is fleeting, is the priestly ministry of Christ on your behalf enough to sustain you? The the problem with the Levitical priesthood was that they had their own sinful weaknesses. They were imperfect. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could mediate for others. And then we'll learn later in this text that the blood of bulls and animals could never satisfy the demands of god's justice that system was never meant to be perpetual it wasn't meant to go to be ongoing christ become, had to become the the necessary and final sacrifice for sins The sacrifice of his own life upon the cross for our sins was what every Old Testament sacrifice pointed to. The shadow of the Levitical priesthood with all of its outward significance was never meant to be ongoing. It was always meant to deepen our faith in the Messiah who was to come and fulfill that final sacrifice on our behalf. And so, The first question i want you to reflect upon is have you looked to christ as your great high priest and are continuing to look to him are you continuing to trust in him are you resting in his sacrificial death on your behalf there is no better weapon against spiritual depression what the puritans called the dark night of the soul than the recognition that god has placed that treasure of the gospel in fragile jars of clay Why would he do that? To reveal our weakness and the surpassing power that belongs to God. That is not us. We're not capable of saving ourselves, of interceding on our own behalf. We need a mediator. We need a great high priest. Paul reflects upon that. That was basically quoted from 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He continues in 8 to 10 saying this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And so when Satan reminds us of our weakness, God says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. You need a great high priest who is continually interceding for you because without it you would find despair to be a constant companion and a hopelessness. So that's our need for a high priest. And now he makes his argument in verses 1 through 3. And so we'll consider the character of Melchizedek in this second point. And this will be our last point this morning. The character of Melchizedek, verses 1 through 3. Remember, the previous chapter closed with this reference to Jesus as our forerunner, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he'll elaborate upon that connection. Everything we know, as I've said, about Melchizedek is found in a few brief texts. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, and Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author of Hebrews has already quoted. But turn with me, maybe keep your finger there in Hebrews because we'll come back to it. But Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, I want to read that for us and see how much of what he has said in these first three verses are simply... Uh, summarizing what we read in Genesis. So Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After his return, this is speaking of Abram, who becomes Abraham. After his return from the defeat of Lomor, I butchered that one, uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Verse six, because this is a quote from Psalm one ten verse four. We've already seen this quote, and the author of Hebrews has quoted it an additional three times. Well, well, a total of three times. So, beginning here in Hebrews five six, he'll reference it again in verse ten of chapter five, and then he says it in chapter six verse twenty. But chapter five verse six, and he says also in another place, "You are a priest forever after the order." of Melchizedek. So from those two passages, Psalm 110 verse 4 and Genesis 14, 17 through 20, the author draws six connections to Christ. First, he acknowledges from the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 7 that Melchizedek is a king-priest. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So he was the king of Salem. And then he's referred to as the priest of the most high god that comes directly from genesis 14 verse 18. it's in the context of those two offices then that melchizedek brought bread and wine elements that would be instituted by christ for the lord's supper and then offered those to abraham as a blessing of the covenant of grace Jonathan Edwards says, Melchizedek's coming to meet him with such a seal of the covenant of grace on the occasion of this victory evinces that it was a pledge of God's fulfillment of the same covenant. In other words, it's a, it's a covenant renewal ceremony in a sense that's taking place there as he returns from this military victory. He's able to enjoy this sign and seal, as it were, of the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that when we take the Lord's Supper. But in the second part of this first verse, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. I think they go together, right? The fact that he is, he is coming as a king priest to him and he is blessing him by enjoying this sacramental meal with him. This new character of Melchizedek, he assumes the superior role by offering a blessing upon Abraham. That would have been shocking to the original audience. They would have anticipated Abraham doing the blessing. They would have anticipated Abraham the one showing the superior role or taking the superior role. And so many have speculated that, that Melchizedek has is maybe some angelic figure or maybe he's the um, pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. But what we do see is a direct connection to God's covenant promise to Abraham being represented by Melchizedek. Genesis 12.2, what was the blessing, the promised blessing to Abraham? I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. See, God uses Melchizedek, who I believe was not angelic, who I believe was was a type of a true, of of a physical person who was Uh, Filling the roles of a king and a priest of God. Um, But God uses him to represent the beginning of that fulfillment promise. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In the second verse, we see that Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham. Abraham acknowledges Melchizedek's superiority. Right, He gives a tithe to him. He honors that superiority. We'll return to that as well next time but Melchizedek is the the king of righteousness the the second part of two and even the third part references his name he's the king of righteousness and then he's the king of Salem so as the king of righteousness that's just a reflection of his name Melchizedek in the Hebrew it's the combination of the word king plus righteousness Melech plus tzedek Melchizedek and then this then as a king of Salem which is a way of referring to the shalom right it's it's actually um, a, a truncated version of the of the city jerusalem right? which means city of shalom or city of peace you can see the connection made by the psalmist in psalm 76 verse 2. so melchizedek is the king of righteousness he's the king of peace obviously both of those pointing to the fulfillment of christ as our king and priest and then the third is the the primary point he makes here he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life so while some see melchizedek as this pre-incarnate christ the language implies that he typifies christ he resembles notice what does it say Um, he is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. The fact that the Bible never mentions his father or mother, nor records his birth or death, does not mean that he was from heaven, as some of the scrolls in the Qumran sect represent. Um, This was a, a group of Jewish believers prior to Christ, even. And so they were already understanding that this role of Melchizedek is important, because of what Psalm 110 verse 4 says. it's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They already recognized that this is somehow a, a, a prophecy of the Messiah. But what they viewed based on Genesis 14 was that, that he was some angelic being. But all it means if we don't have his genealogy recorded is that we don't have his genealogy recorded. It's not indicating that he's from heaven. And these are features that make him comparable to Jesus, and that's what's being drawn out here as a, literary, a literary, literary comparison to Christ. It doesn't mean that he's identical to Christ. So Melchizedek's character resembles the Son of God who has no beginning or ending, and that word resembling would not be an appropriate word choice if the author was suggesting that Melchizedek was actually the second person of the Trinity. That would be odd, right? Oh, he he resembles Jesus. Wouldn't you just say that is Jesus? So typology makes some biblical scholars uncomfortable. They'll oftentimes find the most ridiculous examples from the past in order to discredit the legitimacy of reading Scripture in this way. And they oftentimes will say that the New Testament authors are exemplary of this, you know, faulty reading of the Old Testament. However, finding connections to Christ from the Old Testament is part of how Jesus taught us to read the Bible in Luke 24, 27. It's meant to provide not only a greater perspective on the text we're reading, but it motivates us to keep searching for Christ in that appropriate manner, seeking to commune with him wherever we find ourselves in his word. In fact, taking in the whole counsel of God's word in light of our Redeemer. And one of the better resources I would encourage you to consider on this subject is preaching Christ from the Old Testament. It's obviously written for pastors, but I think anyone who reads it would be encouraged to see how Sidney Gradonis draws out the ways in which we can find Christ in the Old Testament. He notes how critical Bible scholars consider typology to be sheer nonsense. You know, these are these are unbelieving Bible scholars, people who open God's word and, and, and they don't view it as God's word. They view it as the word of men who are flawed and who are making up things to gain power. So Sidney Grandotis points to their sheer nonsense, and then he comments, once the providence of God is rejected, typology must necessarily follow. Right? If you reject the providence of God, you're going to reject redemptive history. Typology also has to be rejected. It cannot exist, he says, without the foundation of God working out his redemptive plan in history. But once you see the cross as the central point in history, then you must read everything in light of that. You don't, you're not limited by just the, the, by the book that you're in. You're not limited by that author's view. You're supposed to take the whole counsel of God's word and to see how it points to Christ. So the author of Hebrews is driving home the point that Christ is superior to everything we see in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the prophets. He's the substance of which the Old Testament characters were mere shadows. If any of his readers were intrigued by temple worship or worldly ambition outside of the church, this message might have given them reason to pause. And the author is providing the rationale for their assurance of faith. It's meant to complement and solidify the exhortation he gave them in the previous chapter. He expects them to wake up from their sluggish approach to God and to persevere in their faith. And this is the means by which they do it, by communing with their Lord and Savior in all of his word. And so they'll only do that. They'll only persevere if they hold fast to that assurance of hope in Christ. And for that to happen, they have to recognize the character of Christ that it's better than everyone else, or anything else. And so when we think about Melchizedek, we think about Christ. We cannot go beyond this approach in our own pursuit of God. When When you grow lazy in worship, or maybe when creative modes of worship become a temptation, as we see throughout the church in America. And turn on a live stream, and you find people doing things to just draw attention to themselves. Blaspheming God in their approach to him, not coming with reverence and awe. But when those things become a temptation, let us remember that we already possess everything we need in Christ. As he's revealed himself to us through his word. We can meditate upon the fact that the character of Melchizedek reflects a shadow of Christ so that the study of this biblical figure draws us closer to our Savior. That's the point of reading God's word, is to commune with him. And so keep reading and keep comparing and highlighting how it fits in, redemptive historical, in that redemptive historical narrative. The end result is a practice that continually builds upon the foundations of our faith as he has urged and encouraged his readers in chapter 6 verse 1. This is how we mature to solid food. Reading God's word in this manner requires preparation, it requires patience and practice. We open the Bible with hearts that are ready to receive the truth, recognizing our dependence upon the Lord. For his help in gaining those insights and having that communion with him. And so, in the same manner that we come to worship in this corporate setting after hearing a call to worship and kind of taking the time to prepare our hearts for that, to prepare with reverence, to prepare with awe, we want to do that every time we open his word in our homes, every time we gather together as a family to pray have a posture of humility and of reverence before God, and so let's do so now as we continue to celebrate what our great High Priest has done for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage, this reminder to us of what our Savior has accomplished. Not only is he our great high priest, but he's also the lamb who was slain on our behalf. He becomes the sacrifice. It's truly remarkable that we can have the privilege of celebrating that this morning, of remembering that sacrifice as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord, may you receive the glory that you alone are worthy to receive and may we be equipped and strengthened and edified and sent out, built up, or dependent upon your word for that communion with you that we seek. Even as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we recognize that this meal, apart from your word loses its significance. It loses the promise. What are we to place our faith in? We're to place our faith in Christ, which is represented by the emblems on this table. So Lord, it's a joy to be able to celebrate with our brothers and sisters that we've been united to in Christ. And as we do so, may we enjoy and experience that communion with our Savior, that only you can achieve and accomplish in our lives by your Spirit as we participate in faith. So we look forward to doing that now with your help. Help us to respond as we sing. Help us to lift you up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our hymn of response is hymn number 231 Whatever my God ordains is right. Hymn 231. Please stand.